the Tom Sumner Program. Old Fashioned Radio for a New Generation. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Not an easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry. What's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. This is Mayor Sheldon Neely, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is uh, Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program, Part 2. Joining me for today's edition of Armchair Politics, our panel of political pundits includes on the left, Flint's premier political pundit, Paul Rosicki. Paul, welcome back. Always good to be here. And on the right, sitting in for Henry Hatter, is... uh, former high-ranking official in two Republican administrations, Mark Everson. Mark, welcome back. Thank you, sir. And uh, last but not least, political operative Bobby Clayton Walton joins the roundtable. Bobby, welcome back to you as well. Thanks a lot. Michigan's top election official on Thursday blasted Republican-backed-voting bills that are pending in the legislature, calling them an, quote, un-American affront to voters and saying some would be more restrictive than a controversial new law in Georgia. Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, a Democrat, said Georgia voters can get an absentee ballot if they include a driver's license number on the mailed-in application. One of the Michigan measures would require voters to attach a copy of their driver's license to the application. It, quote, serves no other purpose than to make it harder for them to vote absentee, she said during a virtual news conference with Detroit City Clerk Janice Winfrey and a Democratic legislator. There's no evidence or data or even precedent to suggest that that somehow would prevent voter fraud. Is there a concerted effort by GOP legislatures around the country to make absentee mailing more difficult? Yes. Oh, I think so. It's enough. I thought 42 states, I've forgotten the exact number at the moment, but uh, 42 states are pursuing you know, various bills along those lines. 
Yeah, all of the things that I've seen and read about are just things to put a little bit more of a crimp in uh, the process to make it more difficult for people who either don't have the means, don't have the attention, don't have um, the money. I mean, there are many, many ways that these things can be uh, nothing more than inhibiting, and they're not necessary. There's never been a a way to show that these things are necessary. And let's look at what just happened in Florida. They've got a tax collector down there that knows how to forge IDs. I mean, that's ridiculous. <laughs> Mark, our, uh, I'm curious about your take on this and, and whether or not uh, um, Republicans are, are actually conspiring in their lodge meetings to <laughs> bring down absentee <laughs> ballot voting. Um, because they believe that that more turnout means more Democrats. Well, some may be. I <laughs> I feel that I feel this is frustrating because absolutely the Democrats are the one who uh, led to impeachment of a president because of concerns about the integrity of an election. Let's remember this. It's about Russian interference and. If we're not concerned about the integrity of elections, uh, then that's news to me. Um, what, what should happen here is there should be a certain standard of protocols that are in place to make sure that somebody is who they say they are and that they are entitled to vote. And I'm not of the view that while, while, while it should be easy uh, to, to vote, it shouldn't mean you don't have to do anything to vote. Uh, but... You don't need to go over the top on this. And yes, try to. Uh, there's no doubt that some are trying to suppress uh, recent recent citizens and others, uh, and that's not good. But some standard of authenticity is okay. And what what I don't like about this is we've now got uh, all this furor over Georgia uh, when uh, a lot of the characterization of the statute is just plain wrong, as I understand it. I've looked at parts of it, but. Uh, some of the standards there are more liberal than they were before the new law. That's never, or hardly ever mentioned in, in a lot of the, the press. So we're in a very, this, is, this issue has become political. It's, it's unfortunate, but I am not against uh, certain standards. I mean, we ought to be able to have elections so that they are settled, not days and weeks later. So we ought to be able to make sure that somebody comes in and presents their documents. Uh, it's not that different, like folks say, of getting on a plane. So uh, there's got to be a middle ground here, but right now it's going down that rat hole of uh, partisanship, uh, just like everything else. Yeah. You know what's, I have, what's interesting? Go ahead, Bobby. Oh, I was just going to ask a question on, I've often heard uh, people defending some of the actions as comparing uh, the need to share your ideas to purchasing wine or to go on a plane or to do some other action. There's a difference between a civil right, which voting is, and being able to buy marijuana or um, a bottle of wine or, or lottery plane. tickets. <laughs> or, yeah. or lottery you know, tickets. What's interesting, Bobby, Bobby is that there, there was, we, historically, the absentee vote has generally kind of been favored, favored Republicans because when it was a little more restricted, Republicans used it more often than Democrats. And a while back, there was a kind of a political science study that speculated on what might happen to elections if everybody could turn out to vote? And some folks, 
you know, generated some numbers and tried to speculate on the possibility of the outcome. And when they, their conclusion was that not much would change, that the, if, you, if you could somehow get everyone to vote, have a 100% turnout, that the results of most elections would be just about what they had been in the past. So, you know, yes. in the long run, these attempts to, to limit the vote may actually encourage some people who otherwise might stay home to get out and vote. That seems to have happened in, in 2016, I think in North or South Carolina, where there were attempts to limit the vote, but the turnout actually went up in response to those, those attempts. I, I agree with that. And one of, one, of the, one of the problems that's vexing the Democrats is, you know, they're losing ground with a lot of the immigrants. And uh, they, they, they may not get what they wish for if they expand the vote. It's, it's, it's not very clear at all what will happen. I agree with that entirely. Yeah. I remember that, um, that survey. I think, I think I read about it in The Economist or one of the other magazines. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, but the thing about signature, you know, I remember, because I worked at polls as a poll watcher when I lived in Texas back in the olden days with the paper ballots. Signature was what was required. <clears throat> you came in and you signed your name, and they compared your signature with what they had on the record, and then they gave you the ballot. What is wrong with a signature? I don't understand it. <clears throat> Nobody has given me a good yeah. response and said that, yeah. that you, you can fake a signature. No. It's much harder to fake a signature. It's easier to fake an ID. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a pretty distinctive X. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I do think this is a manifestation of uh, big data and everything else. And we've got, I would like to see us sort of thrash this out and get something not necessarily that's mandated by the Congress. I, I, I think that's over the top, but there's got to be some sort of template that can be a reasonable solution on some of this that provides a certain amount of standardization, and particularly on issues like how long does the balloting take place, when do they have to be in there if it's a federal election, and so on and so forth, because it just doesn't, it seems crazy to me that you're potentially waiting for weeks to get elect, national elections decided when you've got uh, you know, well in excess of 100 million votes cast. So it just, it's just yeah. really crazy. Well, and looking at it administratively, <clears throat> and I know Mark is very familiar with administrative issues, look how much more complicated it is. The, the more hindrance you put on um, all of the authentication, authentication yeah, uh, that is required, the more work you put on the hands of the people that are actually doing the work of counting the ballots, receiving the ballots, tally, you know, it just makes more administrative work. Yeah, yeah, and more ch and more judicial challenges, of course. Well, yeah. moving on. No, I, I, I'll make the argument here again that I've made before is that I think the absent one great advantage of the absentee ballot is you have a more informed electorate. It gives voters a chance to study the ballot, to check a website, to you know talk to their friends about what this proposal means or what who this candidate is. I think you really have a more informed electorate when voters have a a little more time to actually look at the ballot rather than walking in and spending five minutes in the voting booth. So yeah. I'll get one time if I can digress. Yeah, go ahead. For just a minute. We had a, li a little bit of a controversy down here. You may, may have noticed this. Uh, the Secretary of State, who you know oversees elections, uh, was saying he disagreed with the idea that students would be automatically registered to vote. And he said, I don't want all those woke students voting you know, to which my son, who's the seventh grader, said he didn't think that the 
students at Ole Miss or Mississippi State were particularly woke. <laughs> Probably true. That's funny. That's, that's the Mississippi. Down here, we got a different standard anyway. Well, a new statewide survey of voters reveals that Michigan's redistricting commission has its work cut out to ensure public engagement in drawing new congressional and legislative districts and building trust among skeptical Republican voters. A majority of registered voters surveyed, 53%, reported hearing about Michigan's redistricting process, but only 24.3% of respondents said they had heard of the commission that will be in charge of creating the new districts this year for the first time in the state's history. Is the redistricting process too much inside baseball for the average voter, like the Electoral College? <laughs> I think it is, yeah. I mean, it is inside baseball, but what surprised me is that when that proposal went to the ballot, the folks who were who were getting petitions out had a lot of support from average voters. I mean, but you're exactly right. When I, when I talked about uh, Jerry... Well, and Manor, it passed by like 60%, didn't it? Yeah. 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 I mean, it it was it was surprising to me because it, it, it is a very inside baseball kind of thing and one of the more tedious topics you talk about when you talk about American government. But it, it, did, it did generate some really surprising support, both in those who signed the petitions and then those who, who voted for it in the end. But don't you think, Paul, that was because they they really voted for the concept of one person, one vote, or uh, the right to have a district that more meets the, the requirements of the law, you know, the federal law, um, as opposed to the boring process of how it takes place. If you read the law, it really was quite convoluted. Or even more basic yeah, that, than that, true. Bobby. Oh, yeah, it really, yeah, the, the proposal is very convoluted. Even um, even more basic th than that is uh, based on the assumption that the way they're doing it is bad, and if this is different, I'm for it. Yeah, maybe that's a, <laughs> that could be Well, part that of might it. have been true, yeah. But yeah. the way they're doing it now is taking away my vote, and I want to be sure that my vote is counted. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I did an educational thing on that years and years and years ago before we even got into it at a, a meeting up in uh, up in Boyne. And um, the people up there were amazed at what I told them because it is convoluted, but the concept is so clear. True. And I've always argued that having all these, uh, these gerrymandered one-party districts tends to lead to... Uh, greater partisan division, that you tend to have nothing but liberal liberal Democrats, conservative Republicans, and it's it's hard to be in the middle with those kind of kind of uh, districts. Well, the thing that was funny was when I first brought this up, one of our local elected Democrats, and I was saying we need a nonpartisan commission, we need a, we need a, uh, a non, you know, uh, we need citizens to participate. And this person who was a Democrat said, no, because then when we take the majority, we can do what they're doing. And I said, no. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. That's true. There's no, <laughs> no, bad, bad either way. Yeah. yeah. Well, we have another break coming up here, but when we come back, we've got a couple of things that we're going to take a deep dive on. One that's actually kind of uh, tailored to Mark's uh, wheelhouse uh, when we come back about uh, immigration. Um, but um, 
we're going to let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming us at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. More armchair politics on the Tom Sumner Program straight ahead. Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention is working to help keep you and your community safe from the threat of novel or new coronavirus. If you have traveled to a country with a widespread outbreak of COVID-19, CDC recommends you stay home and check your health for 14 days after returning to the United States. Take your temperature with a thermometer two times a day. Watch for symptoms like fever, cough, and trouble breathing. And if you feel sick or have symptoms, call ahead before you go to a doctor's office or emergency room. Tell the doctor about your recent travel and your symptoms, and avoid contact with others. For more information, visit cdc.gov. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Bye from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Dr. Comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom. This is my favorite interview always. You, you, <laughs> it's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. Yellow. Speaking. Oh, dear. Honey, our car warranty is expiring again. So soon? It just expired last week. You don't even own a car! Not now, Dana. Your father's on the phone. Hey! Mom and Dad, you're being scammed! It's a robocall! Scammers are using new technology and clever tactics to make more and more calls that look legitimate, but are hard to trace. They can make it look like they're calling from any number, even from numbers of people you know. My robocall crackdown team is working with state and federal partners to stop the robocalls for good, but I need your guys' help. Don't trust your caller ID. Verify you're really talking to the person whose number appears when your phone rings. If you accidentally answer a robocall, hang up right away. Engaging in conversation will only lead to more calls. Use a call blocking app on your cell phone that stops robocalls before they interrupt your day. And if you do get a robocall, File a complaint with my office online at mi.gov slash robocalls. And mom, dad, please do not give your information out to these scammers over the phone. They're just trying to trick you. 
Well, at least they call. No, I get it, you're busy. But you know, Janine's daughter is a doctor. She calls every week. A doctor. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hello, this is State Senator Jim Ananick, and you're listening to Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Armchair Politics continues now on the Tom Sumner Program with uh, Paul Rosicki on the left, Mark Everson on the right, and uh, we're joined by Bobby Clayton Walton. And I mentioned before we went to break that I was going to uh, get into a couple things that might be deep dives. One, of course, is the uh, George Floyd uh, story that um, is is working its way toward an end here shortly but uh, I, I also mentioned that there was one that kind of fit into uh, Mark's wheelhouse and I think I'll start with that one. The White House said Friday President Joe Biden will set a new increased refugee camp uh, cap next month after facing a barrage of criticism uh, when officials confirmed to CNN and other outlets that it would remain at the historically low level set by former President Donald Trump. Only hours earlier, the administration announced Biden would sign an emergency determination that keeps the fiscal year's refugee cap of 15,000 but not raise the refugee cap as he had committed to do making a uh, or marking a significant reversal from his administration's proposal earlier this year to lift the cap to 62,500. The move faced immediate blowback from refugee groups and lawmakers frustrated by the sudden shift. Um, Should there be a cap on refugees, what should it be, and how do you make that determination? Hmm. Let's let's start with Mark on that. Well, um, I, as you know, Tom, I was a deputy commissioner of the INS back. Um, under Reagan in 86, 87, in that period, 88. And uh, we've always had generous refugee programs, and sometimes it's cleaning up our mess. I mean, we were, in that period, we were still taking in a lot of refugees from Southeast Asia. I have a daughter, foster daughter, who's a Cambodian refugee. She's uh, 51, two, two beautiful, she has two beautiful girls. And I met her in the Philippines, and you know, her dad was killed by Pol Pot, and uh came to live ultimately with my then wife and, and me in a long story. But uh, refugees are great, and I think what, what uh, you can have differing views on immigration, but I believe that our heritage includes generous refugee program. Now, there's a difference between a refugee, which has historically been a long process, admitting somebody from Syria or from um, Southeast Asia or whatever, and then a claim for asylum, which is different when somebody turns up at the border and, and, and says, take me in or in a ship or something at, at a port. Uh, there's, there is a distinction there, although the actual judgment about persecution may be the same, but it's just a different process. And I think what the president was doing here was he was reacting to the, to the crisis at the border. They won't call it a crisis, but it is a, it is a crisis and trying to say, because most people don't understand that distinction between refugees and and then the folks turning up at the border asking for asylum now or to be let in, uh, he was sort of saying we can't afford to do this. But I, I, uh, I think he brought on more trouble here than he should have. I, I would like to see us go back to the historically generous 
refugee admissions, 60, 80, 100, 120,000. It's a small amount. And uh, as I said, it's, it's, it's an essential part of sort of a leveling of different issues, uh, if you will, where, where complicated and difficult foreign policy issues that get intertwined with all of this. Yeah, I agree with you, Mark. I think that um, not only because we are, that's our, that's our role, we are the country that was built by refugees. We're the country that was built by people coming from so many different parts of the world. But I think also it stimulates our economy. It adds to our culture. It, it, refugees are really what keeps us um, rich. Uh, and keeps us a growing country. It is. And I do agree that the reason that, um, that Biden responded the way he did was because of the turmoil that's going on over the differences, you know, the, uh, the people who are fleeing whatever they're fleeing and the people who are going through the process of using the refugee program. It's a, it's a little clumsy, and, and they've, they've had some trouble. I mean, I was listening on the radio uh, NPR a couple of different times of the day about oh, two or three weeks ago, and the president had been very clear. He, he had said, well, the border's closed, and then uh, don't come. And, he, and when he was asked, don't come, is it don't come now or don't come, he said, don't come. But then on two different interviews, I heard during the one day, uh, Friday a couple of weeks ago, a National Security Council person wouldn't answer that question. And another person who was in a liaison office, senior person in the White House, said, it's don't come now. They are having a real problem mm-hmm. articulating a standard here. And I think it's because the president is a little more conservative on this issue than a lot of the people around him. Uh, it's, they're, yeah. and, and they're not seeing the, the folks in the administration, it's in discipline, are fighting back. It's a little different than what he's trying to do with China or with Russia, where I think the people around him on the foreign affairs side are, are, are more adherent to what he has stood for over the course of his career. And immigration is kind of that mixed issue between domestic and foreign, and then they're having trouble, they're having trouble exercising their authorities in this area. And I it think seems like because of partisan right. divisions, it's been so hard to, to really put together a comprehensive immigration policy. I mean, there have been you know, some books written about it from both Republican and Democratic points of view, but actually passing those kind of policies has been so tough with the partisan divide in, in Washington. Yeah, yeah, you jumped on exactly what I wanted to say, Paul, and that is the Congress has really dropped the ball in taking their own responsibility. Mm-hmm. As far as immigration policy goes. Because yeah, it's, yeah. it is a hot potato issue. Yeah, it's, it's a complex thing, there's no doubt about it. But uh, the, 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 I think it was, wasn't it Jeb Bush and, and another candidate put together a pretty good book about, about a decade ago that did at least put forward what seemed like a somewhat reasonable policy, but it never went anywhere legislatively. Right. Well, I'm and curious McCain? now because of, of uh, what Mark said at, at how you distinguish between refugees and asylum seekers. Yeah, yeah. I was. Is, I, I, it's, it, and it's, it's terrible if we repudiate that tradition because you think of all the, the important uh, statement it makes, the counterpoint to the Soviets or uh, a whole host of folks in Eastern Europe, people who came out of Poland. Uh, uh, it just, it, we have a rich history here 
of accepting refugees uh, as a, as a, a statement to say to other countries, you're not going to get away with this. And um, if and and again, also cleaning up some of our own problems. I mean, Obama. I think he has said one of his great failures was Syria, the policy in Syria that created millions of, of displaced mm-hmm. people. And uh, we need to be able to sometimes clean up what we're doing, if if you will. Uh, and that program, it's it it's about freedom, but it's also it's it's also sort of a hard-nosed in, in certain ways in terms of uh, our, an apparatus that we need to take advantage of. it. And I would say this, it's different from a policy of legal immigration. Legal immigration, I favor bringing people here uh, not because of family unification, but rather economic interest. And, and I would say, okay, all these kids who come for graduate school, uh, if they want to stay, that's a better thing. To We've trained them, so let them help our economy. But uh, that's a different set of issues it's a subset. Is the refugee piece is a subset of this question, and we can't let it get destroyed through everything else. And it's it, this was a bad chapter, I would tell you, going down to fifteen thousand. Yeah, I think so. Mark, would you ever consider, um, or have you done any educational outreach so that you can be um, a, a mentor or somebody who can actually educate people on the differences? Um. I'm not sure what form that would take. I mean, I've written on this. I was a supporter. I wrote an op-ed in the Post in 2013 when the Gang of Eight did the proposal that would have provided a path to citizenship. And I do speak out on this from time to time because I have that uh, traditional, oh, center-right Republican view. I do support the path to citizenship, but I, you've got to have certain controls on this. I believe in, in uh, you know, the country has its, right to articulate a policy that says if you come here illegally we're not going to let you in um and where we are now though is the this very tough issue of sending up children people who are minor uh you know still minors and but yet can travel on their own and they show up at the border that is the toughest issue here it's almost Mm -hmm. it's almost the equivalent of you know remember in the early days iraq war the human shields and this is um this is where, where we are. It's become almost weaponized and uh, politically, if you will. And the families are so frustrated. They, they're saying, yes, I'm willing to let this child go because they'll do better in the United States. But it, I think that, that my own view, Bobby, on this is, and uh, I do try to speak out on it from time to time, that the accident of, of geography can't be allowed to control our policy. Just because people from some countries are closer than others, we need to have a coherent policy that applies applies to all. It's the same thing. Uh, just because you're rich and can travel here from China, should you be able to overstay your tourist visa? I mean, uh, that's, right. that's, that's not the right way to articulate a policy that I think should say you can be here... Uh, legally and we are allowed to set up the standards for who's who stays here or not and or who becomes there's a distinction between being a non-immigrant which means somebody who's just visiting or a student or an immigrant somebody who potentially could become a citizen or or has the right to remain those are but we've it's become swallowed up in the politics yeah oh the special visas that are granted to people that can bring a lot of money and invested in business here um, because we have those too. Yeah, I yes. think uh, 
I wouldn't say that you're, well, from my point of view, I think your, your approach is more pragmatic than calling it right or left. There's some things that work and some things that don't work. Yes, and I do think, you know, going back, I oversaw the law in 86. It's so controversial. People say the amnesty program was a failure. Well, it was supposed to put, that law was supposed to put some teeth in that you couldn't hire illegals. Uh, that's a term that nobody likes to use now, but people were working illegally or here illegally. And the truth is, the reason was, you were mentioning, I think, Bobby, about forged documents before. Yes, documents are easy to forge. And the law, the 86 Act, said all someone had to do was present a, a document that seemed to indicate they were able to work, as opposed to E-Verify, which requires an employer to check a government database that says Bobby is is eligible to work. And um, so that, yeah, that failed because there were some pretty pretty well-crafted false documents. And uh, you can do things to clamp down on whether people are able to work or not and put some teeth into the legal, into the legal system, if you will. And I, I do believe, I believe in the past citizenship because I want everybody who's here to have a stake in the future of the country. And I don't like the the uh, balkanization of the body politic where some people are going to participate fully and others are not. So uh, we've got to come to grips with this, but it's not, right now it's not part of a centrist discussion. No, it's not, unfortunately. Well, moving on, America is being forced to confront a basic failure to keep its own citizens safe with a murderous daily churn of mass shootings and the nation on edge for the end of the trial into George Floyd's murder. That core duty of any political system is being undermined by polarized cultural and ideological divides that have so far made it impossible to adequately address gun violence, police misconduct, and racial inequality. While there have been a flurry of efforts at local levels, the usual outcome at moments like this is political paralysis, as Washington, where national uh, polarization is institutionalized, (laughs) fails to produce even marginal reforms to law enforcement or gun safety. Is there any difference between public reaction to recent events and the go-nowhere conversations following past spikes in mass shootings and excessive force by police? Well, you know, I always look at who's making money off of the situation the way it is right now. And I would say the gun manufacturers and the lobbyists and the advocates for gun ownership. I've seen those commercials that pop up on the screen on my TV, and I look at them and I cannot believe of course, they're filled with lies. The things that they're trying to trigger in people's emotions to get them to send them money. Yeah, I, can, well, I, I, I think the political power is such that, I mean, for, for all these shootings we see, when push comes to shove, the whatever laws are passed are just very minor things at the margins, and even those are are, are hard to pass. So I... I'm skeptical of any dramatic change. Yeah, go ahead, Mark. I was just going to say, I think it comes back to what we were discussing at the top of the show. The technology, though, is making a difference. And um, so I do think that there is going to be, uh, there will be a series of changes in terms of policing that 
inevitably is brought about by the body cameras and the videos and everything else. So I think there will be changes there. The, the problem will be, will be, will some of the forces step back and be less engaged in communities? It's, uh, I think there'll be two steps forward, one step back over a period of time here. Uh, this issue, though, that Bobby's getting at, yeah, it's real. It's the inciting of uh, concern, and it's it's about what happened on January 6th. It's about a whole series of things where people are fearful of government overreach, and then they react um, on the other side. And uh, part of it is a, they do buy firearms and uh, take a series of actions, but it's all about a fear of, of government overreach, and uh, that's that's a complicated set of factors that, that uh, I'm not sure what will cause a pause in, in that, uh, the, that cleaving, if you will, that's taking place. It won't. I've, I've proposed uh, to local people that we need to know more about campaign finance and we need to know more about what states can do and what Congress refuses to do. Uh, regarding response to Citizens United, which has brought massive amounts of dark money into our campaigns, which is driving a lot of the decisions that are being made or not being made um, at the state and, and uh, federal level legislatively. Yeah, finance yeah, well, is a big issue. It uh, is. It is. Well, here this was an interesting turn in the news this week. Former President Donald Trump on Sunday praised withdrawing U.S. troops from Afghanistan while at the same time knocking his successor's timeline for doing so. <laughs> Though the former president offered his support of President Joe Biden's plans to bring home American troops, he urged his successor to draw an end to America's longest war well before the September 11th deadline that Biden set last week. Trump said that while leaving Afghanistan is a wonderful and positive thing to do, he had set a May 1st withdrawal deadline and added that we should keep as close to that schedule as possible. Is there any discernible rationale for either timeline, or are they somewhat arbitrary? I think they're I think arbitrary. They're arbitrary. Because, <laughs> yeah, especially the 9-11 one is 20 years and all that. That's a, a handy date, but, but military-wise, I don't see the, the logic of it one way or the other. Unless it's a logistics thing, because, you know, you've got to move people and, and equipment out. Yeah, yeah, maybe yeah I think it's... it's Totally arbitrary. The people I've talked to who, you know, are national security types, they all say it comes down to the issue, do, do you leave some force in place just to have an American presence? And remember, there are other countries that have forces there, too. I mean, my goodness, we've, we had, you know, tens of thousands, more than 100,000 of troops in Germany and in Japan for mm -hmm. decades. And um, it played a very beneficial role in terms of the... Um, evolution of the world and kept the peace. So I, I think that's what it comes down to. But this has been such a painful war and so divisive and, and uh, never-ending that I think that, that it's easy to understand why the president would say, and, and actually why President Trump felt the same way, no, enough's enough. Uh, but I, I do think that it, it, it will beget uh, some, over time, some real security issues for sure by not having any presence there whatsoever, even if it's only, uh, even if it's only on the intelligence side. I mean, yeah. I was reading something this morning that was talking about, uh, or maybe it was yesterday, 
talking about how the Iranians are spooked because Israel seems to really have their number on, on intelligence. They've got able to do all kinds of things from assassinations to destroying or, or compromising nuclear uh, facilities. Well, yeah, we've had a lot of people over in Afghanistan. If there's nobody there, a, a, a dangerous corner of the world will be less, uh, we'll know less about it. That's got its own set of risks. Yeah, Aren't I've heard we going the to... same issue on intelligence. Intelligence may be the main thing, above and beyond any kind of military you know, combat issues. I've heard that the intelligence may be one thing we're going to lose in that process. Agreed. Are we going to Are we going to continue? Uh, are we going to have an embassy over there? Are we going to have a presence there uh, as a diplomatic um, function? I know the CIA sure. sends yeah, and the CIA sends a lot of people in as the so-called yeah. staff in those places, and you can have military there for security. I mean, it doesn't have to be a large contingent, but, I mean, I looked at Charlie Wilson's war, remember, when we were actually... Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. You know, it, and that's, that corner of the world is a, a sinkhole for throwing money and personnel down the rat hole. Well, now I'm mixing my metaphors. But um, I, I feel like... We have to think, as you said, Mark, we have to think about intelligence, but we also have to think about um, our focus. And I think if it's gathering intelligence, if it's working through India to get at what's going on in Pakistan, because Pakistan has more nuclear than India does, those are security issues. I haven't been able to discern a a, um, a measurable goal or... uh, preferred outcome. It, it, it just seems like it's been presence for presence's sake. Well, I think that it's the idea of nation building and, and helping the country has run its course. I mean, I think there was yeah. a lot of, look, I was in the Bush administration and there was a lot of optimism about helping girls and schools and building a different Afghanistan. And I think that that positive laudable spirit has has dissipated over 20 over a 20-year period and um uh, so but as someone wrote that we haven't lost a, a, a military member for almost a year or something it's been a long time since somebody's died on, on active duty apparently in afghanistan but but still there's just it's it's just identified as having dissipated and really hurt our country in terms of the effort. I think it's a trillion dollars that was spent there rather than than, than here. But uh, I just think we're exhausted from it, and that's what the president sort of said. We're, mm-hmm. He's drawing a line here. And, yes, it's arbitrary, Tom. There's no doubt about it. Well, let's see. We've got, um, and I don't think I have time to squeeze this last one in. Well, maybe. No, I don't. Um, We have a uh, short break. We'll come back with the final segment of today's edition of Armchair Politics, which is always my favorite part, uh, the X-Files. And and I squeezed in one at Paul's recommendation. It's kind of fun. Um, It had a tragic outcome, but uh, it it definitely fits the X-File category. Uh, 
Anyway, if you're listening to us on uh, WFOV 92 LPFM in Flint, they are a broadcast service of the Flint Odyssey House Spectacle Productions and my friend Paul Herring. Uh, we're going to let them squeeze in a few words or do whatever they do when we go to break. If you're streaming the show at TomSumnerProgram.com, we have some messages as well, and then we'll return to wrap up today's edition of Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. So don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. There is still more to be heard. Hey, <laughs> this is the Unknown Comic, and guess what? You're listening to the Tom Sumner Show right now, and now, and now too, and even now. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe By from the Blue Lions. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Ananick. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You, you've always got great questions, and you know the material, and you, and you care about it, and it's, uh, it's, that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all always. It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a kind and check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air. Where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums. Where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses 
and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. The uneasy feeling Rod Serling is behind one of those doors. Rod Serling. Rod Serling. What's this, the Twilight Zone? Where is everybody? I would have been headed for the Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone. If I go any lower, I'll be in the Twilight Zone. All right. All the Jethro's right at home in the Twilight Zone. I'm in the Twilight Zone. Now, having made this little jaunt into the Twilight Zone, I got a feeling something strange is about to happen in the Twilight Zone. Hi, this is Ann Serling, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome back, everybody. We uh, now get into that part of the show that uh, is always my favorite, where we cover those weird and wacky stories that are sometimes hard to distinguish from the regular headlines, but they're strange but true that we call the X-Files. In a uh, a scene caught by multiple traffic cameras, a Florida man drove through the... (laughs) (laughs) do you have those Florida man stories in Mississippi, Mark? <laughs> he drove through the traffic arms of a drawbridge, then made the dangerous leap as the bridge opened. The vehicle was briefly airborne on Daytona Beach's Main Street Bridge, which crosses the Halifax, the Halifax River. Uh, local NBC station WESH said the traffic arms had to be replaced and that police believe they have identified the driver. The gate also appeared to damage the vehicle's windshield, but it's not known if the driver was injured. The, draw, the drawbridge has seen its share of stunts just last month. A motorcycle made the same leap. Do you suppose this particular Florida man was a Dukes of Hazard fan? <laughs> Sounds like a good guess. Yeah, I think you yeah. just saw. Remember the movie Speed, where they took a bus off of a, <laughs> off of some of some end of a highway. So that was even yeah. more impressive. Yeah, that was really. I had adrenaline from the opening scene in that movie. I was just charged. Yeah, I wouldn't want to be in that car. <laughs> right. Well, a Canadian Parliament member was caught stark naked in a virtual meeting of the House of Commons. William Amos, who who has represented the Quebec district of Pontiac since 2015, um, appeared on the scenes, on the screens rather, of his fellow lawmakers completely naked Wednesday. The pandemic has meant many Canadian lawmakers participate in sessions via video conference instead of in person. A screenshot obtained by the Canadian press shows Amos standing behind a desk between the Quebec and Canadian flags, his private parts (laughs) hidden by what appears to be a mobile phone in one hand. Uh, 
This was an unfortunate error, Amos said in a statement sent by email. My video was accidentally turned on as I was changing into my work clothes after going for a jog. I sincerely apologize to my colleagues in the House of Commons for this unintentional distraction. Obviously, it was an honest mistake and it won't happen again. Is this taking transparency a little too far? <laughs> I think so, yes. <laughs> well, it just confirms my fear that my, my computer is eavesdropping on me all the time. Yeah. <laughs> Well, a woman in Krakow, Poland, had quite a fright when she saw what looked like a bizarre animal that had been hanging in the lilac tree outside her home for a few days. The woman called for help dealing with what she thought might be an iguana, according to the BBC. When the officers showed up at the scene, they were able to nab the mystery animal bread-handed because the animal in question turned out to be a croissant. <laughs> the person behind the post theorized that the croissant was thrown out a window as a treat for birds in the area and ended up getting stuck in the tree. The animal rescue did not mention what happened to the croissant after it was retrieved from the tree. How else might the croissant have gotten there given that pastry is not known for tree climbing? <laughs> Maybe a very hungry bird. <laughs> yeah, or an iguana in disguise. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, here's, here's one. Um, every week uh, on Tuesday before we do uh, armchair politics, Paul sends me uh, a, an email with a, a list of, of bullet-pointed items that we might consider. And we're usually on the same page. But he suggested one that I decided at the last minute to... Uh, to include um, because it, it happened sort of locally and, and it was unusual for this area. Michigan State Police are investigating an accident that left an adult black bear dead in the roadway on I-75 near Beecher Road, a rarity in this area. The state says approximately 15,000 to 19,000 black bears, including cubs, roam the hardwood and conifer forests of north, northern Michigan. About 90% of the bear live in the Upper Peninsula, while the remaining 10% are mainly found in the northern Lower Peninsula. Troopers were dis uh, dispatched around 1 a.m. Monday to investigate the bear in the roadway. The vehicle involved in the accident had left the scene prior to troopers arriving, according to a Michigan State Police news release. The Michigan Department of Natural Resources Law Enforcement Division was contacted and the bear carcass was turned over to that agency for further investigation, police said. Um, what are the rules if you kilt a bar with your SUV? <laughs> I wonder if David Crockett ever did that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, that, that brings up so many questions. How did it get here? You know, it's just really... Did somebody kidnap a bear and bring it down south? Yeah. Well, now, there, there, were, there were things on Facebook where people were reporting seeing the bear in their backyard somewhere in Flint Township the, the day before that, that accident. Well, there, there was a report happened. about a week before that of uh, sightings in Shiawassee County, which That's right. is a neighboring That's right. county. Yeah. So wow. The bear went south for the summer. I don't know. That's just really funny. Yeah. 
Maybe climate we change. <laughs> we don't have that problem with the gators down here. Oh, yeah. Well, Florida has pythons. Do you have snakes? Oh, yeah, plenty of snakes. But but the gators stay off the highway, off the interstates anyway. Yeah, they're, they're yeah, they can be dangerous. Yes, that's true. Well, that wraps yeah, it up. That actually wraps it up for today's edition of uh, Armchair Politics and the X-Files on Armchair Politics. Um, but we have, uh, oh, we got about two and a half minutes left if anybody has any final thoughts they want to share. I was just going to say it's great to have Mark here, and, and his, his, his insights are always very, very helpful. And uh, just a nice, re refreshing voice uh, from the Republican Party around here. It's good to have your voice here, Mark. Well, thank you, and, I, I, and thank you, Bobby, as well. And, um, you know, I feel I always learn something. Um, Michigan's an interesting state. you got a really interesting dynamic there with, uh, obviously, it was... Uh, pivotal in terms of the election and actually in the aftermath and a lot of cross currents there as we covered and uh, I always learn something I always learn something when I talk to Tom so I uh, appreciate the collegiality of the of the conversation and uh, Bobby it's the first time I've been on with you and I appreciate your insights well it was good to meet you too Mark and we both worked in DC at the same time I was at the IRS with between 81 and 86 there well, you predated me, and uh, I always told people when I've, I've done a bunch of speeches around the country on different issues, and when they introduced me, uh, I was the commissioner from 0307, and they always throw that in there, and I say, I always interrupt the person who's doing the introduction and say, it worked fine just then, you know? <laughs> <laughs> it did. <laughs> it did, except for the technology. It got a little bit skittish there for a while. Yes, 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 that's true. <laughs> Well, tomorrow we're going to do, uh, on the show, we're going to have, uh, we're going to focus on uh, Earth Day. And I have Brian Moody from Auto Trader talking about electric cars. Purva Jashapura from the PETA Foundation UK talking about uh, the ecological impacts of uh, eating animals. And um, Leslie Van Sant from the uh, Rainforest Trust. So it should be uh, a pretty interesting show for Earth Day tomorrow. And I want to say thanks to Hadassah Lieberman for joining me this morning before Armchair Politics. It's, uh, it was a, an interesting interview, and we do have our archives back up after uh, they were down for a couple of weeks. So now anytime you miss an interview, if you want to search through the archive you can usually uh, usually find it in fact a little easier with the new system that we got installed but i want to say uh thanks of course to bobby clayton walton it's always fun to have you join the round table bobby i enjoy it and i want to say thanks to uh, paul rosicki who's uh, he's just always here always great to be here yeah. And Mark, I hope you don't mind that I had you sit in for Henry when I found out he was going to be gone and you were already booked. I thought, well, it, it's easier to do that than it is to find a Republican in Genesee County. <laughs> See, uh, I, <laughs> yeah, some people still think I'm a Republican, it's, even if the party's moved. Okay, <laughs> well, thanks, everybody. And that's Smoking George. Let me know it's time to head on down the hall to the living room. Good night, everybody. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show. 
we want to acknowledge all of our guests who play such an important role in the show and our cavalcade of cohorts from coast to coast for their regular contributions. Most of the musical accompaniment was provided by people in or from the Flint area. Many of the pre-recorded portions of the Tom Sumner program are made possible by Flint's own Steve McComb and Pencil Sketch Recording in Nashville, Tennessee. If you have comments, questions or suggestions about the show, find us on Facebook. This is Prue Clearwater. Join us next time for another edition of the Tom Sumner program. And thanks for listening.